0: Welcome to Legal AF Midweek Edition. I am ringing an imaginary triangle. Come and get it. A hearty, happy helping of legal and political analysis with your co-hosts, Michael Popak and Karen
1: Friedman Agnifilo. Nice to see you.
0: Karen Friedman Agnifilo. We're doing midweek. We got lots to talk about. Two big things and a new segment. On midweek edition which is mailbag we're taking things out of the twitter feed people that have asked us questions that they want kfa and Popok to address i love and we're that new edition. It.
1: i love that yeah. new addition to the show
0: credit out shout out to a high school friend of mine danny berg who watches a lot of podcasts and wrote me separately and said you got to do mailbag and i wrote what's mailbag <laughs> and so from there the rest is history, and you know what? We got a lot of great ideas, and we're going to pick a couple of them to talk about tonight. Two things in our main segment that we're going to do in the in this 30- or 40-minute uh, midweek is going to be talking about the Jan 6th, first trial, February 28th, that's going to happen in D.C. against one guy, We I love this guy, Guy Wesley uh, Reffitt, who is a Texas oil executive or oil worker and we're going to talk about the whole trove of information that the prosecutor's office is going to bring out against him including his own children and testifying against him when this trial this is going to be grab the popcorn you're going to see the DOJ, Maine Justice, and the U.S. Attorney's Office for D.C. on full display and give you a roadmap on how they're going to do the other 500 prosecutions that are left in the tank. And then we're going to talk about Sarah Palin, which we've been following on the, on the uh, weekend edition. And we have a result. We have a conclusion just the way that Ben and I had predicted it. We've got a two-time libel loser in Sarah Palin. We're going to talk about that. And in the mailbag two concepts for today in Legal AF Law School. One is spousal immunity and all the people that are married and and what about their wives and vice versa, and KFA, I'll take that one. And I'm gonna talk about the development this week where Mazars, the accounting firm for 15 years uh, with the Trump Organization, Uh, wrote a letter to the lawyer for the Trump Organization and said, we are walking away from all of our financial reporting, auditing and certification and telling the world that all prior financial reports, the Trump Organization are not reliable. So that we got a lot to talk about. Karen, I don't even know how we're going to cram it all in, but we are going to, don't you think?
1: I think so. Like I said, I love this new addition to the mailbag. I was reading all the questions thinking, how are we going to pick which one? Because it's so interesting.
0: Yep, uh, and, and we'll keep doing this. This will be a, a nice new, a nice new version of what we're doing today. So let's let's kick it off with uh, Guy Wesley Refit, a member of the Three Percenters out of Texas. They are a right wing militia organization in the mold of the Proud Boys. Um, and why this moron decided out of seven hundred people that have been indicted that he's going to take it to trial? Now, obviously, I'm going to give my opinion. He knows he's gonna lose when, when especially he must've crapped the bed when he saw the witness and exhibit list that the government had to file on the 7th of February. And we'll go over that in detail. But the only reason this guy against this much evidence, video evidence, tape recordings, cell tower evidence, um, his own children testifying against him, uh, another 3%er who got immunity testifying against him, has decided against all odds to have his day in court. Why do you think that is, KFA?
1: I think reading it's hard to it's hard to understand and sort of understand what what they're saying, but he, I think it's his intent. He he's going with the I didn't mean to cause any of the things that they're accusing me of, and he wants to draw a distinction between a protest and an insurrection or a crime. You know, sort of what's a what's a, a lawful protest and what's a crime. That was my gut. Well, me, me. What, what about you? Well,
0: well, I, I, I would have went with that, except the guy was caught with a pistol in his waistband. And when they executed the search warrant, they pulled out uh, not one, but two forty caliber weapons, 28 rounds of ammunition, uh, a vest, a Ziploc ties that you use for handcuffs and the like. I, I leaned a little bit differently. I leaned towards this guy wants to be a martyr. He knows he's, he's a dead bang loser. He knows that the full weight, and power of the US government is going to come down on him. I mean, literally everything they've been assembling for the last year, since almost hours after the uh, the end of the insurrection or the put down of the insurrection, they are going to be trotting out against this guy, which I want to ask you that. that. That I think is good and bad. Is it overkill? Because do they have to put on this much of a case, especially when they've got four or five hundred, uh, uh, four or five hundred other people who are now gonna be taking copious notes with their lawyers about what the case looks like. What do you think about that? Do they need to bring this heavy, they have to come this heavy against this particular guy?
1: Well, first of all, they have to prove every element of every crime right? That's charged against him. And in mass arrest cases, they're, they're hard because if you're going to have people testify about what happened, they weren't looking at any one particular person. They were looking at the whole scene and the whole situation. So this is largely going to be prosecuted based on video. And, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be sort of looking at the video and p- picking out who he was and what he was doing, because there isn't, there can't possibly be uh, tons of witnesses who can, say exactly what this guy was doing just because there were so many people and it was such a chaotic scene so well
0: uh, let me but let let me interject on that because i did read i mean the the, the guy uh, with the
1: horns and you know the the fur coat i I think i love him too and i think everybody knows who he was (laughs) right he stood out but this guy looked like just anybody else in the crowd and with that many people go ahead
0: yeah except except in the 11 page filing by the federal government which I, you'll tell you'll tell our legal AFers why the prosecution has to do that in advance. They laid out their witnesses, their civilian witnesses, and they laid out the the evidence that they're going to be putting on and presenting. It's only
1: about thirteen witnesses, right?
0: Right, but but three of them are Capitol police that had direct interaction with him. Um, so that's one, two. He videotaped himself. I don't know if he if he was using yeah. a GoPro. I mean, GoPros must be the best invention for prosecutors ever because these idiots strap it to their whatevers and they, and they uh, like you and I used to make home movies when we went to like Niagara Falls. These people do it during violent overthrows, <laughs> insurrections, and then send it through social media and dark web or to their families. So the, the, it looks like the sun intercepted video that he sent back to his family like hey look at me i'm overthrowing the government and the kid was like hmm i might have to report my dad to the fbi yeah, the and son I is sh-.
1: the one who turned him in right
0: yeah and the, and the daughter and the daughter and listen to this one kfa the guy the, the, the testimony because it's in the filing by the government the daughter is going to testify that basically the, the the father told her if you turn him in snitches end up in ditches, traitors get shot. And she's gonna testify that her father threatened to kill her. These poor and, the, kids. And, the son, and the son is gonna say the same thing. The son has video evidence and text messages. And the other interesting thing on this list, then I wanna talk about why the prosecutors have to file this list, because our legal efforts are probably going, why the government even tell them in advance? You know, just do it at trial, uh, which is what I would sort of do at, at a civilian case. But the other interesting piece of evidence is it looks like the cryptographers and others for the FBI, for the federal government, have been able to crack the encrypted Telegram platform, which is an encrypted platform like WhatsApp, that a lot of these three percenters, you know, you know, two, two smart by halfers um, use to communicate on that day and other days. And they're encrypted, but it looks like the, the code has been cracked because they've got de- deciphered and translated uh, messages that are part of the evidence trove that's going to be used against, um, against this guy. Why does the prosecution have to, a week or two before trial, file such a thing?
1: So in federal court it it obviously differs state by state but in federal court you have to file your witness list and your evidence list and in this particular instance they didn't just provide a list of uh, a list of witnesses and a list of evidence they also sort of talked about the evidence that was going to come in through each witness and what count it was related to, what charges was related to, it was almost like they were providing a roadmap for uh, for us and people who are watching the trial so that we could see what was happening. I thought it was a very thorough uh, and and good roadmap for for people to understand. And I think people do that in high profile cases so that so that people who are following it can can get such a roadmap and not just get a list. But I, I, I want to say I don't think that 13 witnesses is overkill. For a case of this size. I mean, you still have to prove certain things. Like, for example, in the gun, in the gun charge, he's being charged with carrying a gun over state lines on that date of, of the crime which was January 6th, obviously. And you have to prove that it was a loaded gun, that it was an operable gun. And and it's hard to do that when he didn't, all you see is him in video uh, with a, what looks like a gun, right? It could be a fake gun for all you know. So they're going to still have to prove uh, what the gun, that the gun was loaded and operable and that it was an actual firearm. And so they're going to probably, I would guess, do that through the cooperator who who you alluded to, who's co- the cooperator the cooperating witness who they gave immunity to and to the holster and the guns that they recovered at the search warrant and they're going to argue circumstantially that this was the gun on that date. But so let me that- ask you
0: let me ask you a question. I want to go to the immunity person. So you've got a 3%er who turned on his you know who was facing prosecution and turned on his his fellow 3%er and is going to be testifying and have to testify to the jury that he's been given immunity. Talk about it, not particularly to any case you worked on. Talk about it in general, about when you have a cooperating witness who's given immunity, how you handle that in the courtroom so that he has credibility with the jury, and that he, and he doesn't lose that credibility with the jury but that the immunity issue of course comes out do you bring it out in your direct to and so that it's not uh, you know it's not used against you in cross examination the jury hears it first do you, do you talk about it in the opening so that the jury understands it and and you're you're building up credibility with the jury how, talk about how that works
1: yeah. I mean, you, you go even so far as talking about it in voir dire and to make sure that people don't harbor, you know, that's the jury selection process where you just want to make sure that people don't have negative feelings about having to make deals with the devil, if you will, uh, in order to prove and prosecute and prove cases. And some people have opinions about that and it can't be fair and they won't be on the jury. But you obviously you talk about it in your opening and when they testify and direct, you bring out everything, the good, the bad and the ugly, and then you embrace it in summation and you say, look, you know, know, as bad as the cooperator is, is as bad as the defendant is. He picked him. Yeah, I, I didn't pick him. You know, I'd pick all nuns and, and priests, you know, to be to be eyewitnesses. But but criminals hang out with other criminals. And, and that's just how it is. And so, I mean, it's yeah. it's what everybody, all the prosecutors know how to do that. And, and that's a, how they will do it with, with this individual.
0: Yeah, I like that in, the, in a civil setting. I'd often tell, you know, when I was training my team or, or talking about facts, bad facts or facts that needed to be dealt with. I would tell them don't run away from them. Don't don't feel embarrassed by them and certainly don't feel gun shy about them, no pun intended. Embrace your bad facts. You gotta live your bad facts and you gotta find a way to to maintain your credibility with the jury and and with other court officials. Um, and 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 don't act like the bad facts are that bad. Make them your friends and huh, yeah, I'll take do it one
1: I'll take it even one step further as a trial lawyer on both sides. Now I'm on, on the other side. I always say, what's, what's my worst fact. And then I embrace it and make it my best fact. I I figure out how to do that. And it's hard sometimes, but that's what you got to do.
0: That's what I tell my people take it to dinner, buy it a drink, Make it your best friend. And that's the <laughs> exactly. way it works. All right. Listen, I think, I think we're going to follow this. You and I are going to follow this trial. It's going to kick off, I believe, on the 28th of February in DC. I'm not sure it's televised. I don't think it is. I think the, we're judge, to the rely- judge is a
1: Trump appointee, right?
0: Yeah. But I mean, listen, um, it's really, as you know, it's really out of his hands at this point. It's up to the jury that they're going to select. Um, and that's gonna take a while no but the judge um, for
1: example she the, she's not letting the mm-hmm. defendant out on bail for example which i thought was interesting oh, yeah. she's i mean you got I a know. gun
0: tote got a gun-toting insurrectionist i i mean even the trump's trump appointees have got to go hmm you know but so you and i are going to follow it but let's move on because we try to do a rapid speed chess type thing on this on this edition let's move on to what I referred to at the top of the show as two-time libel loser, Sarah Palin. We talked about it on Saturday, Ben Massalis and I in our show, on the other show, and we said, we're going to follow this and that it was very unlikely she was going to be able to prevail on actual malice in front of the jury. What we hadn't anticipated is, and maybe we should have, is that the uh, defense, the New York Times, was going to bring what's called under under the federal rules of civil procedure, a Rule 50, motion, and ask the judge as a matter of law to rule in their favor, even, and take it away from the jury. Yes, a jury has a process, but if there is a element of a, um, of a, of a uh, cause of action, in this case, libel and defamation that has not been proven by the plaintiff, then the judge as a matter of law can find on that defense or on that claim in favor of the other party. Now he's done an interesting thing here. Uh, two days ago and all the reporting was Judge Rakoff, who's the judge of the Southern District of New York federal that's handling the Palin case, he he granted the Rule 50 motion brought by the New York Times and I guess by Stephen Bennett, who's the editor, who was also um, implicated, but that he was gonna allow the jury to continue to deliberate because in his words, I know this case is going up on appeal and the second circuit, which already reversed Rakoff once at the top of the case, when he dismissed the case on a motion to dismiss against Sarah Palin, the Second Circuit reversed and said, Judge Rakoff, you shouldn't have done it on a motion to dismiss. Let the discovery happen. Let the handle it on summary judgment later on in the case or let it go to trial. So he did. But at trial, he did not hear evidence to support that one element that a public figure or a public official has to make out in a defamation case or a libel case if it's in writing, and that is actual Malice, so he lets the jury deliberate because he's he said, "Well, let me see what the jury's going to do." Because if the jury sort of sides with me and finds that there's no actual malice, uh, my job is done here, and that's exactly what happened. Because yesterday, or actually today, today the jury, yeah, today the jury came back unanimous decision, unanimous decision that there was no actual malice proved by the lawyers for Sarah Sarah Palin. Let's dive into actual malice.
1: Before you do, so, can I just ask you one yeah, quick question? Sure. Why did So Judge Rakoff is one of the more uh, brilliant uh, federal judges. Yeah. I mean, just a, a real smart, interesting judge. Why would he have signaled what he was gonna do uh before while the jury was deliberating because i mean judges always have that power to do that and it happens yeah. occasionally why would he signal and risk the jury reading about it or you know the, there being some other yeah. issue like why would he do that instead of just wait and see what happens and if they come back and find actual malice then he can move then he can dismiss it why do you think he did I that? i think
0: i a i agree with you that he's brilliant i actually early in my career when i first started at a at a large firm he, when he was a white-collar guy, a white-collar defense lawyer, he was involved with a case I was on when I was a very junior lawyer. So he's a brilliant, he is a brilliant guy. I think this was cover for Judge Rakoff. I think he he had to grant the Rule 50 motion because after listening to two weeks of testimony, including by Bennett, who testified about what happened. And, and let me just bring everybody up to speed because you know I, I don't want to make the assumption that he listened to Ben and I over the week, the Ben and me over the weekend. Um, so Sarah Palin brought the defamation case against the New York Times. She argued that in a 2017 editorial, which was on the day after the shooting at the uh, the congressional bipartisan, baseball the congressional yeah,
1: baseball game,
0: right the bipartisan baseball game where Scalise got um, terribly injured or shot and and injured by by a gunman. Um, he made the Steve Bennett who wrote the piece. Um, uh, made a link uh, between the that shooting the Gabby Giffords shooting in 2011 in which she of course was terribly brain brain injured by a shooting and six people died he the editorial made the link between that and some propaganda that Sarah Palin's pack put out which i remember which was a a, a target a mailer that had uh, gun sites, what looked like gun sites is no other way to call it. It was red circles with, with crosses in the middle of it over certain districts, you know, basically encouraging her supporters and fund and donors to take out, you know, um, Democratic uh, representatives in these districts. And around the same time, she was also quoted as saying, you know, don't retreat when you're facing something, reload another stupid, gun violence type motif that she adopted. So listen, they wrote an editorial linking the shooting to rhetoric like that. She didn't like it. There was no real reports or evidence that the shooter at the softball game, or the baseball game, was influenced by Sarah Palin. But that doesn't mean her office didn't put out those pieces.
1: Yeah, but the New York Times retracted it pretty quickly after they put it out.
0: And that's what Judge Rakoff said. He said, you know, you had an error it was an error. It was a bad error, but it was an error, and it was corrected. And that's what the New York Times said in their press release today, which was: "This stands for the proposition that the fundamental First Amendment right uh, of, you know, editorial privilege of a of a newspaper to make a mistake, but then correct it when there's no harm, you know, that should that should be dismissed. There should not be, you know, a public official should not be able to chill." and attack the media by filing these lawsuits. And the preeminent case in this area, and this is, we'll tie it together with where the Supreme Court could go if they ever got their hands and a monkey wrench under the, under the hood of the First Amendment, the way they have with abortion and religion and all the other things this, this last term. So the, the case is actually, you know, this is what you and I learned in law school. It is a New York Times case. It's a 1964 case of New York Times versus Sullivan. Or Sullivan versus New York Times, which was written by Justice Brennan. Um, and it was a 9-0 decision. And it stands for the proposition that if you're a public figure, that you have to um, clear another hurdle that that citizen John, John or Jane Doe, like you and I, don't have to clear if somebody defames us. If somebody, you know, I'm not yet a public figure. <laughs> Maybe, maybe this show will make you and I a public figure. But for right now, if my next door neighbor yells out something at me, and, and accuses me of like a loathsome disease, or accuses me of money laundering of doing something untoward, that's probably defamation. And it may be defamation where I don't have to prove damage or injury, or maybe defamation where I do. But I'm because I'm not a public figure. If I'm a public figure, that same person yelling that out at me, also, I have to satisfy the, that they had actual malice, which is sort of what it sounds like—that they intended uh, to lie about me, even in the face of counterfacts that would have led them to believe that what they were saying was untrue. And so, you've got that is the bedrock principle—at least it's 1964—of First Amendment media law. Uh, the, and that's the rules of the road for whether you're social media or your media, big media, whatever you wanna call it. And and that's why mostly, mainly people like Sarah Palin don't win lawsuits like this. They don't even get this far this, because-
1: this, Yeah. Go ahead. No, just really quick, I was gonna say, um, when you was reading about, about this article, um, it was interesting that different people interchangeably use the words defamation and libel and slander. And so I had to Google it myself and just sort of remind myself what's the difference. And so for for everybody out there who's like me, um, defamation is the umbrella term that refers to either libel or slander. So de- to defame someone is to say something bad about them, as Popok was just saying. Um, but libel is to do that in writing, and slander is to do that orally. And I just thought, put it out there, I sort of look at it yeah. like pas- pasta is the umbrella term, but you have spaghetti and you have penne pasta, right? They're, they're all pasta, but they're the different types. Yeah.
0: Yeah, without a doubt. And, and just to round out this uh, segment on Sarah Palin and where it's going to go next, uh, for our legal AFers who are scribbling to keep up here with our episode, um, the case is uh, reported at 376 U.S. 254. two fifty four, And it's a very interesting the way it arose. The, the southern states in the 1960s had a strategy of going after mainstream media and liberal media like the New York Times because they hated the reporting about Jim Crow laws, civil rights movement, you know, fire hoses being used against protesters and black population and all that. And so their strategy was let's sue the bastards for defamation and libel in this case, as you just pointed out. And this was the culmination of that Southern strategy because you had Alabama and the police department or the police commission of Alabama didn't like the fact that the New York Times, think about how long ago this was, the New York Times ran a full page ad by supporters of Martin Luther King Jr., in which in the, in the ad, it wasn't even something the New York Times wrote, in the ad, there were a couple of facts that were like off, like how many times he was arrested not that he wasn't ever arrested, but they Al- Alabama took umbrage that it said like he was arrested six times in Alabama, and it was only like four. And they had other really small, inconsequential details wrong in the ad, and they sued because they wanted to have a chilling effect on the New York Times and other media outlets. But what I didn't so, understand- no. No, go ahead. Finish. No, no. So anyway, Sullivan, who I kind of forgot from law school, was the police commissioner for Alabama. But anyway, it's a case that the that the Supreme Court at that time in that era used to to create this new element of actual malice. The problem is you've got at least two judges on the uh, justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas, who have signaled in other recent cases that if they ever get their hands on New York times versus Sullivan, that, that they may make major changes to it. Gorsuch saying that was written at another time in 19, I don't know why I'm using a Southern accent for Gorsuch that was written in 1964. And now with social media and the rapidity of, of the way media moves, that is an outdated standard for, for what should be actual malice, which of course made my heart stop because now it, with the numbers that they have in their favor on the Supreme Court, the right wing of the Supreme Court could now destroy the fundamental bedrock of the First Amendment. Go ahead, Karen. I'm sorry.
1: No, no. I just I found it interesting that the that the the right wing is the, that there's people are surmising that Sarah the reason Sarah Palin's bringing this is is to do exactly what you just said and get this issue in front of the Supreme Court because they want to change the actual malice stand, uh standard. I just found it interesting that that's a right wing position because. Uh, it's going to apply to both sides, right? To both um, to both uh, perspectives, and I hate to say it, the the Alex Joneses of the world and and other um, other sort of far right wing um, Fox News, et cetera, they're going to have to to be a lot more careful with their reporting if the cha- if the standard of actual malice changes. I mean, the New York Times can make a mistake here and there, uh, but they're pretty good at at being factual and not and not sort of I mean, I just don't think it's going to apply to the left as much. It's going to apply to the right and and the carelessness of the reporting. So I don't quite understand why they're fighting for this so much. I, 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 gr- I that agree with weird. you.
0: I think you live by the sword. You die by the sword. I agree with that completely. Um, let's go to mailbag. We're doing the new segment on Legal AF midweek mailbag. We've got mailbag and we're going to kick it off with spousal immunity, which comes up all the time, KFA, because a lot of these bad guys, primarily Republicans, have uh, wives, uh, or they're about to marry their girlfriend. And everybody's wondering, hmm, I wonder what happens when the girlfriend becomes a wife, or there's a spousal immunity in play? What happens if she was the girlfriend when the bad thing happened? And now she's the wife when the testimony happens? Then what? So I said, you know who's perfect to explain this? A former (laughs) prosecutor at your level, KFA. Hit it. Let's talk about spousal immunity.
1: It's actually a spousal privilege, which is slightly different than an immunity. Um, So sometimes it's known as the marital privilege. Sometimes it's the spousal privilege. And it's, uh, there are are different privileges in the law. Everyone knows about the attorney-client privilege, which means communications between an attorney and client are secret and they can't reveal them, et cetera. Well, there's this marital privilege or spousal privilege. And there's federal uh, privileges, which are different than state privileges. So I'm not going to go into every single one because it's slightly different, but there are two basic concepts and two basic marital privileges. One is the confidential marital communication privilege, or let's just call it the communication privilege. And the other one is the adverse spousal witness privilege, or also known as the testimonial privilege. So one is for communications, one is for testimony. And the more common one uh, that, that everyone sort of has heard of is I think the marital communications privilege. And that just was recognized in a Supreme Court case known as Trammell versus the United States, that just it's all about marriage and the sanctity of marriage and trying trying to encourage spouses to talk to one another and and talk freely and and, um, it requires four things. A, a communication of some sort so it could be spoken communication it could be written communication it could be sign language as long as it's communication of some port, some sort uh that you're actually married and it's a valid marriage um that it was made in confidence so not in front of others normally if there's a third party there uh that won't be considered made in confidence and fourth um it must not be waived in some way, uh, like by having another another person there. And it survives death. It survives. Um, it survives everything. It just. It literally. It, it exists always in both civil and criminal matters, and it's it held by either party. So, so. Uh, I can force my husband um, not to testify. He can say I can't testify. He can choose it. I can choose it. It's it's um, very much a um, sort of umbrella uh, umbrella privilege that is not doesn't go away with divorce or death. But the other one, the one that prosecutors use, which is slightly different in a slightly different scenario, is for criminal cases only, and uh, that is the one where. It only belongs to the witness, not the defendant, not the person who's accused of the crime. So in a criminal case, if the person who's accused of a crime, if your spouse wants to testify against you, they can, and you can't stop them if you're the accused. And the the thought behind that is that if your marriage was so great, uh, you know, we want to we want to we want to protect the sanctity of marriage. But if your marriage was so great, you wouldn't want to testify against them. So clearly, you know, clearly <laughs> there's some issue there. Um, it's also to encourage people, uh, victims of domestic violence. I mean, otherwise imagine a scenario where where we're a victim of domestic violence and and you can't testify about it because what your your spouse, your husband said about you. So, you know, and and if once you're divorced, by the way, you no longer there's no longer um, any privilege there whatsoever. So so that this one is is slightly different, but that's basically the spousal slash marital privilege in a nutshell.
0: So let me go back. So let me go back just to sum it up. I am with somebody and we're dating and that guy or woman commits a crime, and then he marries me or she, can I testify against that person or not in a civil setting?
1: If it happened before you were married?
0: And yeah, we were boyfriend and girlfriend.
1: Then it and doesn't then we apply. Got
0: married, and then we got married right before the trial. Like this is, this is, this is where you're doing, you're doing such great service to legal efforts because every movie ever made about this issue
1: they the get plot. married to prevent the person to testify. The,
0: pl- the plot twist is exactly that. It's like, come on, honey. <laughs> I love you. Let's get married. Don't worry. My trial is on Friday, but let's get married today. Oh, God. But, you're, but, but that's, not, that's not the real world. The real world is they had to be married at the time of the transaction, crime, or whatever, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there's some exceptions, like if you're committing a crime together, for example, and, the, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Things like that, right. but but that's right. essentially what what it is. So
0: yeah, all right, great. And I'm going to thank um, Midas the Pug, Midas the Pug, who also goes by Popak and Midas, on her Twitter feed for that uh, that question that we pulled from the mailbag. And now let's we're going to go to. Mazers, the and everybody knows them because the Supreme Court, a few years ago, ordered they turn over their all of their work papers and financial records and certified accounting records for the Trump organization, having been the um, accountant and auditors and certifiers of financial things for the Trump organization for a long time, at least from 2010 to uh, to uh, 20 or 2011 to 2020. Now, I'm going to be doing most of the talking on this one. <laughs> when I get to some big picture items that don't really relate to the Trump organization, if I get something wrong, uh, Karen's going to hold up a giant Yeti water mug and then I'm going to try to backtrack. That's yeah, our they, theory. They,
1: we got to get Yeti to sponsor us because they right, really well, are the best. They are the best right. water mugs.
0: So here's how it works, ladies and gentlemen, and if, and I'll, I'll announce it for those that follow the pod audio. If she holds up the giant red Yeti, I've probably done something wrong. Otherwise, I'm going to be taking this segment. So, um, and I, 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 let me thank two people, uh, two followers and listeners for this, uh, this idea. One of them is Cheryl Ann Murphy, and I'm not outing her. That's her, that's her Twitter handle. Uh, And the second person that we're gonna compliment for uh, the idea today to do this one is K, is J.K. uh, Sister, or J. Resister. Okay, so the uh, New York Attorney General's office made a filing uh, the day before yesterday in which they disclosed that Mazers, a general counsel, had written a letter to the Trump Organization basically disclaiming 11 years of certified uh, financial records for which they were responsible. So let's just break it down. Every time the Trump organization needed to show financials, their financial health to a lender, to an investor, to some sort of uh, counterparty, stakeholder, the market in general, whatever, the SEC, if they had an SEC issues, they had they can't just do it on the back of a piece of paper and have like uh, Weiselberg, their financial guy cfo certify it they got to get like an independent uh, what's supposed to be an independent company now normally companies of this size use what's called the big four or the big six i think it's down to the big three now accounting firms but there's a tier right below that of good competent auditing and accounting firms i'm not sure Mazers fit that bill at the time but they did the job for the trump organization They, my speculation here is that they have been leaned on by the New York attorney general's office to cooperate and having been pointed out to them a number of places in their certified filings that may not be correct based on the NYAG investigation, including a giant filing of 125 pages that the NYAG just recently made in which they went through all of the fraud and false statements that Mazers has sucked themselves into by certifying, "Mm." Mazers sort of has now thought better of continuing A, to do Trump's work any longer. So they're like, we're out, we're we're not gonna do your work anymore. But in in a look back that is breathtaking in scope that I've never seen in 32 years of practice, the auditing firm said, everything that we just said for the last 11 years can't be relied on. We didn't find any material misstatements in there, but it's completely unreliable. So if you're a third party that's relying on these financial papers for any purpose whatsoever, don't.
1: Popak, let me ask you a question. Is there an accountant client privilege?
0: That's a very good question. Can you answer that?
1: (laughs) I think the answer is no, (laughs) there is not, which is why this can happen which that's I just right. think Thank is because there aren't just it's, yeah. it's just something for people to know that there are certain privileges in the law and that there aren't certain privileges so there's doctor patient yeah. privilege there's attorney client privilege but there is not accountant client privilege and so that's if you right. think you're, you're if you think your conversations with your accountant are privileged and your account, your accountant in general can't be subpoenaed against you that's to testify against you that's that is false
0: Despite a valiant effort by basers all along the way, until they got into the crosshairs of the NYAG, they were, they were fighting back themselves. They did not will, you know, willingly turn over boxes and electronic boxes of their materials um, to the NYAG. They, you know, they, they were, or, or even to your old, old office, they were forced to do it by the US Supreme Court. So, but now, I mean, talk about this. Think about the ramifications of this. You, every loan document, every loan document, every place where the Trump organization or its principals are guarantors of debt and loans. And it, and it reaches into the billions and hundreds of billions of dollars for which they have personally guaranteed the loans. It's what's called a recourse loan where the bank, if they can't get it out of the asset, if they can go against the person who signed up for it personally. All of these have default provisions, all, I don't even have to look at the document, I just know it exists. Within every document, there's a default provision that says if anything about your financial situation, if you get indicted, if you get investigated, if your auditors or CPAs walk away, then you're gonna be, we're gonna put you in default and we're gonna call the loan, we're gonna charge default interest rate. So this may be the single worst thing civilly that has happened to Trump so far because of the domino effect throughout his, the house of cards of his finances, whether it's Deutsche Bank or any Capital One or any of the banks, can't even believe he was using Capital One for his, lend, for his lending, but, but in any event, um, this will be a cascading effect, just ripping its way. It's gonna be like a fire going through you know a paper house when, when it's all said and done and implicating ultimately, and just, I haven't seen the Yeti yet, uh, implicating ultimately, the children the, many of the children were involved in, in these representations, you know, the size of Trump Tower apartment, Eric Trump, you know, this, you know, something over here, Ivanka. I mean, there are, you know, this, you know, this again, you want to put your family in key executive positions, and you don't want to have independent business managers play that role. Okay, then when the whole thing comes down, comes crashing down, it's going to come crashing down on the heads of your children and you. So I, I don't want people to minimize how, how devastating this particular turn of events could be in the, in the ultimate defo- default and downfall of Trump and his empire. Uh, and we're gonna follow it. It was a three-page filing, but it, it, you know I think it may have lit a fuse that you and I are gonna be following, or at least I'll be following, and you'll be watching me follow it <laughs> for, for some time. So mailbag, What'd you think about mailbag? Did you like it?
1: I loved it. I really hope we get a lot more questions. I think that's really fun to, it's fun. It's fun to also brush brush up on areas that you don't always think about, but it's, I love the mailbag idea. So I hope we get Uh, a lot of questions for next week.
0: We will. And now that people know about it, and we're going to ask for it earlier in the week, then um, I think we'll, we'll have a really nice segment on there. So KFA, Karen Friedman Agnifilo we've reached s- the end i huh? want to say
1: tonight was hard to pick a topic because there's so many things that oh. happened today between sarah palin yeah. between prince andrew settling his case
0: yeah. i mean
1: i i couldn't believe there's just so many different things we could talk about in the news it's,
0: you know you know what you know what that means that means ben my Salas, and i are going to have to cover it all on saturday edition of legal af where we cover 10 or 11. it's like again speed chess we go one, two hours at all, but our show here with you and I, with you and me, Wednesdays, and with the audio pod dropping right after it on all the places that you pull your pods from. And uh, then Saturdays, Ben Salis and me, we do Legal AF, a two hour version, both audio and video. And it was my pleasure again today. I think we're on episode five or six. Couldn't ask for a better time. and and a better person to be with on a Wednesday night than with you. And it's Michael Popak and KFA signing out. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Shout out to the Legal AFers. We'll see you next week.